Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The other hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Um, good to talk. Welcome to the first episode of The Other Hand for 2024. Um, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I hope you had a good Christmas and I hope 2024 is a good one for you. Um, it's been an, an extraordinary starting few days to the new year actually on financial markets which we're going to talk about but I, I think an interesting starting point here would be just to look at how 2023 ended you know it was quite extraordinary and between October and the end of December we saw bond yields collapse everywhere we saw equity markets put in an incredible performance um, for the year as a whole the S&P was up 24.3 percent the Nasdaq was up by 53.8%, the Isaac by over 23%, the German market by over 20%, and so on. And US 10-year bond yields ended the year at 3.86%, having briefly tipped 5% in October. So there was a dramatic end to the year, really. And for investors, I guess it was a very strong finish for what was a quite a challenging and volatile year um and and i think the the key story in the last couple of months of the year was the surprise on the inflation front and the market's readjustment in terms of where interest rates were going to go. And basically, the market started to price in aggressive interest rate cuts very soon in 2024. And as we approach the end of the third day of the new year, um, we, we see equity markets having a dreadful start to the year. Bond yields are up again and um, that the markets seem to be all over the place. So how do you interpret what's going on at the moment? Well, it's looking back and looking forward, which was the title of our last podcast. And uh, I think it's appropriate that we're doing it again. Just looking back at 2023, which is now over, 
it's done. And it, it was an extraordinary year, Jim, from a whole host of perspectives, because if people go back and listen to our podcast and indeed any other narrative at this time last year, the prognostications that people were making uh, turned out to be extraordinarily wrong. You and I go on about how forecasting is so difficult, next to impossible at the best of times. And it was an extraordinary year for just how bad the forecasts turned out to be. It was the second year in a row, for example, that people were fretting about the prospect of a US and therefore global recession over the next 12 months. They were fretting about that in the previous year, actually. And that recession failed to turn up both in 2022 and in 2023. So now we've got the flip side of that. Everybody is saying there isn't going to be a US recession this year. There isn't going to be a global recession. We have the soft landing. And it's that soft landing that drove equity and bond markets into something of a frenzy during that November and December time that you referenced there. And it was, I think, quite an extraordinary time in markets. And the most salient point, I think, was that interest rate markets were starting to price in cuts in central bank interest rates through the course of 2024 that many of us think are quite unrealistic, unless that famous recession turns up. The way I see it now is that uh, what the markets are doing over the last couple of days, which is the worst start to equity and bond markets for a new year, I think this century actually, Jim, or at least for the last 20 years or so, it's, it's, it's been an extraordinary couple of days early days yet, very short term. We mustn't get too sucked into the short term. But it is definitely the case that markets are once again reappraising the outlook. And they got carried away in November, December of last year with the soft landing narrative accompanied by pricing in of massive interest rate cuts. Now they're saying, I think, which is in keeping with what most economists are saying, is that those interest rate cuts on the scale that they were priced in are unlikely. We could start to see interest rate cuts as early as March in the United States, because that's the economy with the best inflation numbers. So what we're now seeing is markets having a rethink and saying, OK, there may well be rate cuts this year, but we're not going to see big rate cuts unless economies weaken dramatically from here. And that recession story begins to reemerge. In particular, I can't see central banks cutting interest rates in a dramatic fashion unless we see a lot of labour market weakness. Because one of the many oddities, one of the many peculiarities of 2023 was how labour markets, in the face of all of those interest rate rises over the previous 18, 24 months, stayed so tight. We've got full employment everywhere. In fact, we've got job shortages everywhere. Now, the fact is, of course, that labour markets are weakening. And I invite you at this point to take us through some data that we've had today. It's a minor piece of data for the States, but it is also in keeping with manufacturing data that was released. And I know you've been looking at it, Jim. Yeah, I, I think, Chris, one of the narratives certainly around what central bankers might or might not do next year revolves around what happens in labour markets, because the one thing central bankers do not want to do is take risks with inflation by cutting prematurely. And I think one of the indicators they will look at is the strength of labour markets and how that's feeding through to wage pressures. Um, today, we got the US Purchasing Managers Index for Manufacturing um, it came in at 47.4, up from 46.7, still a weak number. But within that, 
um, price pressures decreased, but also the new orders and the employment component were uh, quite a bit weaker. We separately got another piece of data on job openings um, and they fell by 62,000 in November to reach the lowest level since March 2021. So it's clear that the the data is certainly showing, despite the fact the US economy had a good year and continues to have quite a bit of momentum, you know, there, there is a slowdown happening in the labour market. And I think uh, the Federal Reserve won't be unhappy about that. Uh, in, in the context of Europe, we'll be getting the person managed indices over the coming days. The employment component of those indices will be interesting to watch because as is the case with the Federal Reserve, I think the European Central Bank is very focused on um, labour markets as well. So I think the Federal Reserve you know, will take some comfort from today's data. Uh, but whether it causes the central bank to cut rates by as much as markets have anticipated and built in in the final days of last year remains to be seen. I suspect uh, they might be a little bit of a little bit of disappointment there, to be honest. Yeah, I think we're talking about the nuttiness of markets here, Jim, to be honest. That's a technical term, of course. They went crazy in November, December. And with the benefit of hindsight, and I admit that, we can certainly see that uh, they got themselves into, into a bit of a tizzy. And now we've got something of a correction. Because there's always greed and fear going on, to use that time-wanted cliché. And the fear is, of course, is that the central banks won't be able to engineer this much-vaunted soft landing and that they will delay the rate cuts for too long. They will wait. And the lags in the system between actually moving on interest rates and their effects on the economy are such that if they wait too long, we might get that much-talked-about but never-arriving recession. And it would be ironic, of course, if we got it just when it is least expected. But that is, that is often the case. I think, Jim, that that's probably enough on the, the short term and the vagaries of central bank policy and the way in which markets are reacting. And I think that we should probably take a look at what we consider to be the bigger picture events of 2024, what people should be looking out for, perhaps just laying down markers for what you and I are likely to be talking about through the course of this year. There's over 50 countries that are going to have elections this year, um, some big, some small. It starts with Taiwan uh, this month, and that may provoke China into something, but we have presidential elections in Russia, or sort of elections. We might have an election in Ireland. We might have an election in the UK. Do you think we're going to get an election in Ireland this year, Jim? Well, uh, Chris, if I, if I may go back to this time last year, I mean, the topic of conversation looking ahead to the coming year was how high central banks would have to take interest rates to bring inflation under control, what impact it would have on economic activity. I think today the discussion, um, as we've discussed so far in this podcast is about, you know, when central bankers start to cut interest rates and, you know, the impact on economic activity. But a key theme, as you say, in 2024 will definitely be um, on the political front. Um, you know, we, we have 76 elections apparently in the next 12 months. Um, you know, Taiwan, the States, we have European elections, we have local elections here. 
And um, the big question, I suppose, from a domestic perspective is um, how soon a general election might or might not happen. And I'm getting very mixed views on that. Uh, The position is that a general election has to be held by the end of March 2025. Um, I'm hearing that Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, is more anxious to go sooner rather than later, whereas the Fianna Fáil part of government and the Greens indeed are anxious to put the election out as far as possible into 2025. Um, one of the interesting points about any coalition government is that in the final 12 months of the life of the government, you often see things going awry because the individual parties in the coalition start to feel a bit pressurised and they start to perhaps um, go 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 alone in terms of policy initiatives. In other words, go rogue. That's the term I was looking for there. And that can very quickly bring a government down very, very quickly and force a general election. Um, If I was a betting individual, I would say it will not be held before October this year. And I think there's at least a 60-40 chance that it actually could be pushed into the first quarter of 2025. And the key reason I say that is because um, there's a very strong narrative coming from government, particularly from the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, that actually the government is getting on top of the housing crisis belatedly. And he said, he was quoted um, in the last couple of days to the effect that fair-minded people would recognise that progress is being made on the housing crisis uh, before uh, when the next election is due. Okay, so it it remains to be seen if that's the case, but uh, we are very definitely in election territory. The local elections in early June will be really interesting here because uh, the performance of Sinn Féin will obviously be watched with uh, huge interest and the impact that the Sinn Féin vote has on parties of the left like People Before Profit, the Labour Party, will be um, very interesting to watch. But I think more particularly... It's the economic platform of Sinn Féin that will have to emerge over the coming months ahead of local and European elections and, of course, ahead of the general election. And that really is what I will be watching most closely over the next 12 months, what exactly Sinn Féin's economic policy platform is. I think we got the first sense of that from that interview that was conducted by Pat Leahy in the Irish Times with Mary Mary Lou MacDonald before Christmas when she was talking about, um, and she lacked a lot of specifics other than to say she would like to see Dublin house prices come down 30%, uh, which was an absolutely bizarre type of statement to make. Um, But that's about as much as we know about Sinn Féin's economic policies. So that will be the real test, I think, over the next 12 months, what exactly Sinn Féin stands for from an economic perspective. And I think it was obvious in the reaction to the budget in October that Sinn Féin recognises from a political strategy perspective that it has to move closer to the centre, that it has to um, try and convince sort of middle-class voters 
um, that actually Sinn Féin will not destroy the economy and will not destroy uh, the wealth that people have built up over their lifetimes. So perhaps we will see more and more of a move from Sinn Féin towards the centre of the political spectrum. In that, in which case, Jim, I would be t- I have to ask you, as a, as a relative outsider to the Irish political scene, does Ireland need another centrist party? No, it it does it doesn't actually. Um, you know, we, we I would regard Fianna Fáil as left of centre. Sinn Féin at the moment is obviously well left of centre. Labour people before profit are well left of centre. Fianna Gael, in theory, is a slightly right of centre party. But if you look at the economic policy platform of Fianna Gael over recent years, um, you know, it's basically a high tax, high spend party like the rest of them. So I would not categorise Fine Gael as a centre right party, to be honest. The so two I main parties are centre left in your vernacular there, Jim, in your description Indeed. there. And, uh, that would be my and view. And what you're yeah. describing is that Sinn Fein, in order to make further electoral gains, is, is going to have to also become a, a centre left party from being a far left party of, of the past. So Ireland's politics will be dominated by three centre-left parties. Is that is that a right, a correct interpretation of what you're saying? Yes, I think it is, and I and I, and I think you'll see in the policy platforms um, ahead of those elections that the focus will be on housing, the focus will be on health, and the focus will be on law and order, and there will be one. Um, suggested solution from all of the parties, that is to spend as much money as possible on trying to solve those problems. I think you will see very little discussion about tax cuts and some people would say that's absolutely appropriate so people can make up their own minds on that. But parties that actually espouse significant increases in public expenditure as the solution to all problems can only be described as centre-left parties. So, you know, I, I stand by that assertion. And I have to say, it really pisses me off to see um, Fine Gael being derided as a right-wing blue shirt party and so on. That is the sort of disparaging comments we hear from a lot of people on the left. Fine Gael isn't a hell of a lot different than those parties on the left at the moment, as I see it, to be honest. So could the big surprise result of the Irish general election be, no matter who wins, no matter who loses, no matter what coalition is formed, uh, provided it's some combination of those three centre-left parties, it doesn't make much difference to anything. Could that be the outcome? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
that would probably be the case. Uh, you know, it, obviously, if, if Sinn Féin get into government, um, the number of seats they get will be incredibly important because that will determine how much power they have to change policy radically, um, you know, once they get into government. Um, but to, to do that, they are actually, as I say, going to have to move more towards the centre to try, as I say, and convince um, middle-class people particularly that Sinn Féin will not represent the end of the world. Sinn Féin will also have to make a strong play about being a pro-business party because foreign direct investment, as we know, is an incredibly important part of the Irish economic model and um, what would be absolutely disastrous for the country would be for Sinn Féin to send out a message that that Ireland has become a lot less pro-business because foreign direct investment is fragile at the best of times. I think it's particularly fragile at the moment for a variety of reasons, not least the corporation tax developments, some of which um, came into place on the 1st of January this year. The others will come in presumably over the next couple of years. So the environment for Ireland in terms of attracting foreign direct investment is definitely becoming more challenged and more competitive. Um, And in that context, I think Sinn Féin would be absolutely mad to turn around and send out negative messages about what a Sinn Féin government would might mean for business activity. Yeah, so we've talked about markets, we've talked about Irish politics, and there is a connection, of course, There's not a strong link between domestic Irish politics and global financial markets, a weak one at best. But one of the conclusions that I think I draw for the outlook or the assumption I make about the outlook is that I think that politics, geopolitics, are going to be much more important for financial markets this year than central bank interest rate policy. The last couple of years, it's all been about um, interest rates. And politics have been important, absolutely. The war in Ukraine and more recently the war in the Middle East has affected financial markets, but only relatively briefly and only indirectly. The Ukraine war has only really had the impact, albeit a fairly big one, via the spike in natural gas prices that accompany the outbreak of that war. And of course, we've now yesterday had the lowest natural gas price in five months, in in Europe at least. US natural gas prices have also fallen dramatically last year. And so I think it's going to be geopolitics and the way that interacts with markets going forward. And things to watch will be, uh, I hear mutterings of people very worried that uh, Russia could win this year, the war in Ukraine. Um, It is a very static front line at the moment, but uh, the Viktor Orban and the Republic in Europe and the Republican Party in the States are refusing further funding. And Ukraine is running out of munitions, artillery shells in particular, but lots of things in general. And Ukraine is having to up its conscription levels. Do you know the the, the average age of the frontline soldier in, in Ukraine, in Ukraine's frontline, Jim? I presume it's late 50s. Well, it's in the 40s. Oh, it's in the 40s, uh, yeah. okay. Um, no, because I read a piece over the Christmas where um, people up to the age of 60 are now being dragged into the army, you know, into in the front line. It's, it's, uh, they don't recruit anybody under 27, I believe. And uh, the army has asked, I think, to recruit younger people um, as well as the older people it has been conscripting. So they're, they, they look to be in a tricky position, um, putting it mildly. 
And, of course, Vladimir Putin has just launched his biggest air assault, fire drones and a variety of cruise missiles, the biggest one so far in the war, to try and break Ukraine's morale, I guess. Um, but he, he's waiting for November. Victor, um, Vladimir Putin is waiting for the presidential election and presumably the arrival, he hopes, of Donald Trump, which is going to be the geopolitical event that affects us all. And I know that lots of of people are talking about that and you and I have no insight as to whether Trump is going to win but we do have some I think uh, views on what will happen if he does so that's going to be a topic of conversation you and I are going to have through the course of this year but we've also got big developments going on in the Middle East and they're affecting markets they're affecting economies because the oil price goes up and down depending on what's going on in the Middle East you might remember that one of the assumptions after Israel went into Gaza was not, well, fear rather than assumption, was that the conflict would escalate throughout the region. Iran would get drawn in, and if Iran got drawn in, then so would the United States. The United States positioned two carrier groups in the eastern Mediterranean, and that was the dog that didn't bark last year, escalation of the uh, war in Gaza. We've now had um, a big assassination of uh, Hamas leader in Beirut over the last 24 hours and a, a horrible bombing in Iran at the gravesite of um, an Iranian Revolutionary Guard commander that was assassinated by the US um, four years ago today, I think it was, hence that they were all gathering to remember this uh, Revolutionary Guard person that the Americans killed in Baghdad, I think it was. Again, that was a drone attack. So the, the, there, are, there are mutterings that, uh, whereas we got quite confident that escalation wouldn't happen, horrible though the war is, it was assumed it would stay contained within Gaza. Uh, I think one to watch again, and something that we will inevitably be talking about as, as the weeks and months progress, is the extent to which it hopefully doesn't, but might um, escalate. And all eyes will be, of course, on Lebanon and the extent to which uh, that border becomes a flashpoint, a bigger one than it has been. It always is in a, in a relatively small way. But there are members of the Israeli government, for example, reported in the press who are urging Israel to cross over into Lebanon in the way that it did many, many years ago. And I think that would be a uh, a very serious event for everybody, not least the people concerned, but also all of us with the consequences for not least things like oil prices. But I think I think geopolitics, I, I'd be interested in what you think, Jim, but I think that markets will be affected more by geopolitics, the US election, the two wars that we know are going on. And of course, there are plenty of other wars around the world. Um, I think these are going to be bigger deals than interest rates. What do you think? Yeah, I actually I actually think so. I think geopolitics will dominate. You've spoken about the situation in Gaza, the Ukraine war. They will obviously remain a feature of the landscape in 2024. Lots of other wars going on around the world and the outcomes of elections like Taiwan and the United States particularly uh, could have huge implications for 
um, the whole global geopolitical backdrop. So de- definitely um, pe- people might say, listen to this podcast, what the hell are two economists doing talking about politics? Um, it's certainly not our qualification. But at the end of the day, I think as economists, we now have to spend a lot more time actually analysing geopolitical events than economics per se, because uh geopolitical events do have economic consequences. There is no doubt about that. Um, One of the things I think will be of interest as well in terms of the European elections will be the performance of the far right um, across the EU member states because there is certainly a strong chance that you will see a lot more far-right politicians getting elected to the European Parliament, uh, particularly out of France, but a number of other countries as well. Uh, That in turn could have huge implications for the future stability of the European Union and also for the EU's attitude towards support for Ukraine because, you know, we've already seen the damage that Orban in Hungary is doing in terms of the EU war effort to help Ukraine. So that 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 will also be um, worth watching. Um, I was interested over the last few days, um, the Argentinian president, Milai, who took over there just before Christmas, in his New Year's Eve address, he mentioned Ireland, would you believe it? And I quote directly, Our reforms would imply levels of economic freedom that in a span of 45 years would allow us to aspire to multiply by 10 times our GDP per capita, reaching levels similar to Ireland. Um, It is quite extraordinary to hear um, a, a... A nutcase politician in Argentina um, actually setting Ireland up as the sort of model that he wants to achieve for Argentina. And um, I I say he's a nutcase uh, politician in the sense that his whole election platform was absolutely bizarre, the chainsaw-wielding economist. But um, it, it is interesting for a country that has experienced decades of political instability, of economic deprivation at a pretty dramatic level, um, massive financial market problems and so on, that it's now trying to aspire to Ireland. And yet we have a certain part of the political firmament in this country and their supporters, you know, arguing that Ireland is basically a basket case. Well, it's kind yeah, of strange, isn't it? Yeah, and you know where I sit on this one, Jim. I think that Ireland is one of the I do. one of the nicest countries on earth to live in. Um, on all of the metrics that one can look at, it is certainly one of the most prosperous countries in the world. Politically, it's a country very at peace with itself, at least for now. And I can understand why Argentina aspires to be like Ireland. But if you listen to the domestic political debate, particularly the way Ireland is described in some corners of the media and also by Sinn Féin in particular, you would think, why on earth would anybody be seeking to emulate it? So on this one, I think your crackpot economist in Argentina, Jim, has got it right. Uh, a final comment from me about something that I, uh, that I will be looking at through 24, something that, as you know, excited me a lot through uh, all of 2023, actually, because it, it began in the autumn 
or at least our awareness of it, began in the autumn of the previous year, 2022, when we first started to see all the chat GPT versions of artificial intelligence. And I think that we're going to see big strides made, big developments. Not sure which way they're going to go. I do think artificial intelligence is going to be something we're going to be discussing a lot. We're going to see it impacting a lot. There's a lot of debate about where, where and how that will happen. Um, I stress that artificial intelligence isn't just about the chatbots, that they're the most visible aspects of it to lay people like you and I, but there's lots of other versions of AI going on that have the potential at the moment to upend economic life and as well as political and social life. And that there are all sorts of interesting little nuggets out there worth watching. The New York Times, for example, is suing OpenAI, which is one of the biggest uh, artificial intelligence firms. It is the uh, creator of ChatGPT, for example, and it's in bed with Microsoft. And both Microsoft and OpenAI are being sued for plagiarism by the New York Times because these chatbots scrape the internet and use the content of organizations like the New York Times, but all content creators are being potentially abused and plagiarized by these chatbots. So there are all sorts of legal ramifications. So I think that uh, technology is, as, all, as it always is, is going to be a big story this year. And I noticed a very good article that I read over Christmas by Tyler Cowen, a professor of economics in the States, says that technology doesn't move smoothly. It moves in, in leaps and bounds and then goes very quiet for a while. And he thinks that we're in for a big leap, a big bound. So again, and something else that I think that we have been talking about and something else that we will be talking about a lot this year. So for me, the, 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 the way in which all of that is tied together is I think, as I said earlier, interest rates are going to be less important than geopolitics. But I also think that interest rates are linked to that debate about AI. Because unless AI produces the economic miracle that a lot of us hope that it will, big productivity boost, I think ultimately interest rates are going to defy the consensus and are going to go back over time, possibly not this year. Maybe we're going to wait until 25 or 26. But I think the risks without a productivity enhancing AI boom, our economies are so lacklustre that interest rates are going to go way back or maybe all the way to the lows that we saw pre-pandemic. That, that, that almost a forecast, Jim, but it's not necessarily one for this year. I'm going to obey the, obey the great dictum of good forecasters, which is say something will happen, but never put a date on it. <laughs> uh, Chris, if I just may wrap up on one theme, which I think will also be significant in the next 12 months, that's on the whole climate change debate and agenda. Um, in the last couple of days, the Society of the Irish Motor Industry has published end-year new car registrations for Ireland. 122,850 new cars registered. That's 15.6% up on 2022. Uh, petrol sales up, diesel sales down dramatically. But wait for us, the pure electric vehicles, these are not the plug-in ones, just the, sorry, the plug-in hybrid models. It's the pure EVs, 22,789 sold, up 45.4% on the previous year. 
and accounted for the highest percentage of the market ever at 18.7%. So the electrification of the car fleet here is proceeding. But I sense um, in the last three months, particularly of last year, that the love affair with EVs here is starting to suffer a little bit because uh, while everybody really wants to drive one if they can afford it, but they are very expensive, but the range anxiety, the charging infrastructure is totally inadequate at this juncture. And um, that brings to mind a a piece I read from the Oxford economist Simon Ren Lewis over the last week, where he was talking about the role of fiscal policy and government debt. And he spoke about how fiscal policy was used after the global financial crash back in 2008 and then when COVID hit. But he would argue very strongly that it is now time for governments to grow government debt to tackle climate change. Okay, and he's basically saying that if governments do not pump a lot of money into the transition to um, all of the various things that are needed to address climate change, well, then the price that we will ultimately have to pay down the road will be significantly greater than anything we might be forced to spend now. And it is in that context, you know, I go back to what's happening here in Ireland, and I think government does need to invest massively in creating a proper infrastructure for the electrification of the motor fleet, but also for the development of renewable energy, both onshore and offshore, the development of solar energy and so on, because um, we hear a lot of talk about it, a lot less real action. But I think the Simon Wren Lewis piece is really interesting in that context. And a final point I would make, Chris, is that I was reading Walter Isaacson's biography of Elon Musk over the Christmas. And um, I noticed in the last couple of days a story that China's BYD has overtaken Tesla as the world's biggest manufacturer of electric vehicles. On that note, Jim, I think we shall wrap it there. We're out of time. We've outlined, I think, what we're going to be talking about for the next 12 months. So a very happy new year to you and to all our listeners. And I look forward to speaking to you next time. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 